Listen now to the word of God, Acts chapter 21, beginning at verse 17 through verse 36. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do, therefore, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the, official, uh, and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. At once, the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps... He was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So reads the word of God this morning. Such was the experience of the Apostle Paul. Our text this morning really is of one piece with the passage that Nick will preach next Sunday, God willing, beginning where we left off here in 2137 and going through chapter 22, verse 29. 
Here we see Paul's initial reception when he finally made it to Jerusalem. First, the reception from those in Manasseh's house there in verse 16. At the, as we finished last week, we saw him arrive in that place. We read here of the reception that he received there. It was a joyful reception. And then also the next day, the reception he received from James and all the elders of the Jerusalem church. Luke records that when they heard his story, they glorified God because of it. Next in this story, we'll see the elder's recommendation to Paul about how he might regain the favor. You heard that just read, how he might regain the favor of believing Jews there in Jerusalem. And that is followed by an unmistakable demonstration of the fact that their idea did not work very well. It did not have the desired impact. That's as far as we'll go today. But then next Sunday, we'll see Paul then on the steps of the barracks there gain permission to address the crowd in verses 37 to 40 and then deliver that address. But once again, he'll hear the opposition of the Jews as he does so and then face the resulting response of the Roman military. And that takes us up through chapter 22, verse 29. We're just looking at the first part of that today. So this week and next week really are of one piece, and this week is just the setup for the, the main event in next week's text. That main event is the first of Paul's five recorded speeches over the next five chapters in the book of Acts, defending himself but also defending the faith. As we pointed out last week, that seems to be Luke's purpose in this extended section of the book of Acts is to hear these speeches from Paul and understand more of the faith that he was preaching and some of the distinctions we need to hear that are a blessing to us as we face potential persecution. Hearing how Paul responded is helpful to us. Luke gives a fair amount of attention to this setup that we just read this morning. It's a pretty extended section, so we're going to give our attention to it as well this morning, recognizing that it's just an on-ramp to what we see next week. There's no part of it that's really hard to understand here. As we read the story, there's nothing really hidden there that you're not going to pick up on as we read the story. So there's nothing really hard to understand, but I do believe that there are some helpful insights that we can gain from it, some lessons that we can learn for our day, today, just by looking at this experience that Paul has so far up to the time where he's on the steps of the barracks being carried there by the Roman soldiers and before he actually turns toward the crowd and starts making his speech in defense of Christianity. We can learn something about suffering, as I mentioned. The outcome today, the thing that I will be charging you and challenging you at the end is to pray for those in persecution now, those who are facing it currently on the planet. We aren't necessarily on the level that Paul is seeing it here. But if we as a church are called to pray for those in persecution, as we did last Sunday evening in just a sweet and memorable time of prayer, pray for those in persecution now so that they'll be better equipped to endure it And so will we when it comes upon us. That we ourselves might be better equipped for persecution by being in touch with it 
such a way that we are actually praying for the persecuted church, that it's a priority on our own hearts, therefore preparing us to recognize it and endure at the time when it comes. That's the aim, and we'll get back to that as we close this morning. I mentioned in my prayer that suffering is part of the inheritance of believers. It is. We'll hear that again this morning before we're finished. We know that Peter wrote to his people, for instance, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised by it. But rejoice. Rejoice. Did you catch that? When suffering comes upon you, why do we have to preach on a subject like this? Well, because what the gospel enables is amazing. We will experience it because Jesus did. What do we do with it? Well, apart from this instruction, we don't know. Suffering without knowing where it's coming from or where it's headed is absolutely unbearable. Jesus doesn't leave us there. Scripture doesn't leave us there. It tells us how to respond to this. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter continued on, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That suffering just means that we're on the trail with Jesus And it is the basis of our assurance that when he returns, we will still be in favor with him and experience what's on the other side of that as well. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Paul wrote to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And with regard to Paul in particular, right here, Jesus said back in chapter 9, as he was talking to Ananias about this Saul of Tarsus that he had saved sovereignly on the road to Damascus, he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Persecution is a fact of Christian life. We see that in Paul's life this morning. And while it's less evident in our lives here and now, we can learn through him some of the most familiar and unfair and offensive characteristics of persecution so that we're better equipped not to be surprised by it when we face it. That's where we're headed this morning. And what a great backdrop for Thanksgiving. Let's do this in two parts this morning. You see those listed in your bulletin. First, the wide-ranging experience of Paul's first week in Jerusalem. There, we'll just walk through the text unbroken as a whole. And then, learning with Paul in the school of persecution in Jerusalem. That's where we'll just draw some lessons from this. And what we see in this text and some of those things that I mentioned that could be helpful to us today. So first, the wide-ranging experiences of Paul's first week in Jerusalem, we heard them as we read through them. We've already mentioned that Paul was gladly received by the brothers in Manasseh's house. 
there in verse 17. And when he and his team initially arrived there in Jerusalem, and then on the following day, as Luke records, James and all the elders of the Jerusalem church glorified God when they heard all that he had done among the Gentiles through Paul's ministry. It's verse 20. But the positive responses in this text end right there. They end right there. After their rejoicing with Paul at all that God had done, and wouldn't you have loved to have sat in and listened to that meeting, listen to the parts that came to Paul's mind and heart as he's telling James and the elders what had happened there. It's been a long time since he's been in Jerusalem. Home base was Antioch, remember? So it's been a while since he saw these guys, years perhaps. And he's sharing with them all that happened, and they glorified God when they heard it. Then after their rejoicing, after their rejoicing, James and the elders began to inform Paul of of what was happening right then in Jerusalem. He hadn't been there for a while, so he hadn't, hadn't seen it. What he was going to face, it appears as though Paul had come to Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, the celebration of the giving of the Spirit, the the initial day of the establishment of the new covenant community. And so Jerusalem was swelled in its numbers by pilgrims who were coming for one of those three annual feasts. They were telling him what was going on in Jerusalem, what he was going to face, why the promised persecution was going to arise. That's what they talked with Paul about. Because his being here, everyone knew that it was coming. Verse 20, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews. That's well beyond the population of Jerusalem at the time. But the city, as we said, swelled because of the the feast attendance. See how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. That's what the new believing Jews in Jerusalem are hearing. The Jews for whom the Old Testament Scriptures are finally making sense as they see what was being pointed to through all of those prophecies in Christ. These are believers Now, what they had been told, what they were believing about Paul, was surely untrue. There are many evidences of that fact in Paul's letters, which he was writing during this very same time. His letters to the churches explaining the gospel, explaining the theology of conversion, they were all being written during these days. So there's much evidence that what's being said here about Paul is not true. We also know that that this is a confusing topic, Pauline theology. Peter said it. Paul's hard to understand at times. There are parts of his teaching that are hard, but this is not what he was saying. He was being unfairly charged. Gentiles surely don't need to observe Jewish law to become Christians. One of his earliest letters to the Galatians made that abundantly clear. But also, it would be unfair to say that Jews would need to lay down their Jewish practices just because they became Christians. That wasn't necessary. There's no reason 
why they couldn't still honor the Old Testament feast days, why they couldn't participate in the vows that we heard Paul had earlier in, in recorded in Acts, and here now another group that is finishing a season of vowing here in Jerusalem. There was no reason why the Jews had to lay aside Jewish practice just because they became Christians. There would be a change in the sacrificial system and the observance there, but not in all of the other rituals that they would follow. But we also know that that's a complicated subject, isn't it? It's complicated to figure out how that all works together. In several familiar texts, Paul explained in detail the need to show toleration for each other in these disputable matters of how to treat Old Testament standards in New Testament community. Romans 14 and 15, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, passages of Scripture that address these very confusing topics and help Christians know how to navigate them in a mixed community. Gentiles coming to saving faith, Jews accepting Christ as Messiah, formed together into one new body with no dividing wall between them, torn down in Christ, Ephesians chapter 2. But how does it all work? Well, it works by helping us in the Spirit to love one another and to be patient with one another and to be forbearing with one another and to learn through our walk with one another how to keep secondary things secondary and how to keep primary things primary. So anyone who didn't like what Paul was saying what Paul was preaching, anyone who didn't like what he was saying or what he was preaching could easily build a case that he was saying whatever they needed him to say to justify their canceling of his message. It was complicated enough for that to happen, and that's exactly what we see happening in Jerusalem. Cancel culture. Cancel culture is not new. It goes way back in history, way back. And Christianity has long been a unique target of it. If these folks had grown frustrated with Paul's message and had ever heard him say something which they didn't fully understand, they had the liberty, or so it appears, to make him say whatever they needed him to say for them to marginalize him or even do away with him. That's what we see happening in this passage. It's important for us to see this. It's important for us to understand this that those whom James and the elders were identifying as zealous for the law were actually Christians. This is now not the unbelieving Jews who didn't receive Christ as Messiah. These are the ones who did. So this is a divide in the church as well, not just a relational struggle. These folks were like those Christians at the Jerusalem Council back in chapter 15 who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, Luke records there, and who, quote, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to order them to keep the law of Moses. It's necessary. That was one of the sides at the Jerusalem Council. And right here in the text, we hear a review of what the Gentiles heard from that council. They set aside the practices of idolatry that were so offensive to the Jews according to the law, but that that was all that was required of them. 
There were some, though, that didn't like that answer. And evidently, there, was a good, there were a good number of Jews in Jerusalem right now during the feast that didn't like it. The reason it's important for us to keep this in mind and to remember that it, were, it was the Christians who were causing the problem here for him in Jerusalem the reason it's important for us to see this is that we need to recognize and to remember that it is possible for Christians to get extraneous ideas intertwined with their faith to the point that they unwittingly add them into the gospel. They make them necessary for saving belief. It's important for us to see that because, my friends, this can still happen today. Political ideas are especially ripe for inclusion in this recipe in our day. That's one of the easiest places where you can see it happening. I'm actually acquainted with some genuine, fruit-bearing Christians who are part of a church where the majority of people honestly cannot believe it's possible to be a Republican and a Christian at the same time. I didn't misstate that. How can a lover of Christ, a lover of God's word, support a party that places such low priority on care for the poor and the oppressed and seems so strongly opposed to caring well for God's creation by fighting every initiative that addresses global warming. Meanwhile, in other churches, perhaps one's a bit more familiar to us, I'm actually acquainted with some genuine, fruit-bearing Christians who honestly cannot believe it's possible to be a Democrat and to be a Christian. How can a lover of Christ a lover of God's word, support a party that places such a low priority on the value of unborn human life and seems so strongly opposed to caring well for God's creation by endorsing things like fluid gender and same-sex marriage. How is it possible? To the point where we can question the genuine belief of brothers and sisters in Christ based on intertwining political views with our understanding of the gospel. That's where the arguments begin. And then they heat up pretty quickly from there. And there surely are strong feelings on each side, but bottom line for this morning, Let's be reminded from Paul's experience here in Jerusalem how easy it is for Christians to get extraneous ideas intertwined with the gospel to the point where they can actually become a test for genuine saving belief. And if they don't go quite that far, they can be a prerequisite for genuine Christian fellowship. They can set up a divide within the body of those who are redeemed by the shed blood of Christ and reconciled to God in him. The public demonstration that the elders recommended to Paul here in chapter 21 was his participation in and 
his funding of the completion of a Jewish vow, a ritual, for four unnamed, some commentators suggest some impoverished brothers, four unnamed men that the elders identified here in verse 23. Through this action, the elders anticipated that all the people will know that there is nothing in what they have been told, verse 24, about Paul, but that he lived in observance of the law. That's what they were hoping would be proven by his participation in this completion of the vow for these four brothers. Now, according to the Mishnah, we need a little clarification here from verse 26 into verse 27. According to the Mishnah, the commentary on the Jewish scriptures, since Paul was coming in to Jerusalem at feast time from overseas, he would have had to regain ceremonial purity by a seven-day ritual. That's what's being referred to there in verses 26 and 27. He would have had to participate in a seven-day cleansing ritual before he could be present in the temple at the completion of the ceremony for these other four men. So he had something he needed to do first. The the elders talked about the fact that you need to purify yourself along with them. For Paul, that was a seven-day process before he could be prepared to finish well their cleansing at the end of their vow. So what Paul did was report to the priest at the start of his seven days of purification to inform the priest that he would be providing the funds for the offering for these four men at the end of this week. And then he would return to the temple at regular intervals during that week for the appropriate rites for his own purification. So that's why he was seen in the temple then before the seven days were finished, but as he was doing something that was required for his own return to Jerusalem. But what we see is that that plan did not work very well at all. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, think about that, from Ephesus and the surrounding churches where he had had so much trouble. In fact, the description here later, some shouting one thing, some shouting another, sounds like just a replay of that riot that had gone on in Ephesus on the beginning of his third journey. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, verse 28, crying out, men of Israel, help, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. So he's teaching everyone everywhere against the Jews as the people of God, against the law, their scriptures, and against the temple, the place of God's dwelling among them. This Paul is a scoundrel needs to be taken care of. Moreover, they continued, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now we find out in the very next verse, verse 29, that this latter part wasn't true. They'd just seen him with Trophimus and assumed that he had taken him into the temple. And we already know from previous scenes in this history here that other parts aren't true either. I mean, Paul had Timothy circumcised. Remember chapter 16? Had Timothy circumcised when he joined the team because his Jewish mother hadn't done so already. Stuff about Paul that they're saying is not true. It's not grounded 
in truth or reality. But you know what? The facts did not matter to these Asian Jews. Because their minds were already made up about Paul. You could say it jokingly. My mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. But folks, that's just how it happens when we feel threatened. Verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up. And the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once... The gates were shut. That's worth a pause and a ponder. If this were the songs, we'd see a seal out there. What an amazingly ironic and symbolic description here. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. The temple of God on which it's important to note Jesus had already pronounced judgment. Luke records it in chapter 21, verses 5 and 6 of his gospel, his volume 1. The temple of God was closing its gates to the one whom Jesus himself identified to Ananias. Again, back in chapter 9 at Paul's conversion, whom Jesus identified to Ananias as God's chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This one is expelled from the temple and the gates are shut behind him. It's an amazing picture. This is a salvation historical image that's going on here. This isn't just a detail of the history of the moment. This is a an installment in the closing and the destruction of the temple. Why? Because that's not God's dwelling place any longer. His dwelling place is in the hearts of all who believe. We are now the temple. The crowd here, though, verse 31, was ready for a public lynching. And the only thing that stopped it was the arrival of the Roman tribune with his soldiers and centurions, verses 31 and 32. They intervened and arrested Paul. The details are there in verses 33 to 35. And they tried to get him to safety, but verse 36, the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. With that, it finishes this scene. This is what happened to Paul during his first week in Jerusalem. This is how the persecution began in earnest. And how it showed itself is still instructive to us in our day, I believe, even all these centuries later. And even though while we're on the same mission, we certainly live in different circumstances and face different day-in and day-out trials than Paul and his team did, Still, what we learn here about persecution is helpful. But first, let me make a few introductory comments. Then I want to give you three principles that I think are helpful to us to understand this. Some introductory thoughts, though. Persecutors persecutors have no interest in fairness. Do you notice that? 
So often the response that we give to persecutors is to argue toward fairness and rationality and logic. And that's just not what interests persecutors. They have no interest in fairness. Learning to defend the truth for us is good. It's good. It's good for conversations with people who are open to having relationship with God. But truth is of no consequence to persecutors. It just doesn't matter. We see that played out before our eyes or before our ears here in Acts 21. It's not really truth about what you're preaching that bothers persecutors. They just don't, they just don't get angry about truth or error. What makes them mad is when they feel like they're going to lose something. And that's what we see here and that's what we see replayed again and again in situations where persecution takes place. What makes them mad is when they feel like they're going to lose something and they get really mad when they think they're going to lose something that's of great value to them. That's what we need to understand. What is generating the rage? I'm going to lose something of great value. That's what does it not motivated by finding the truth, but by protecting something highly valued. That's what's happening in Muslim countries and Hindu countries as we read about the, the just grotesque persecutions that brothers and sisters in Christ receive in those countries that have religious governments. But there are manifestations of the very same thing much closer to home than that. For instance, for those who support abortion rights, the truth of the argument of whether a, a fetus is a person really doesn't matter. The truth or falsehood of that is not the issue for those who are opposed to limitation on abortion. That battle will never be won as a truth or error battle. It's put up against their freedom to do what they want to do. That's what they're afraid of losing. That's what those who defend that are afraid of losing. And if that's what they're afraid of losing, the freedom to do what they want, that is the battle that will never be won in a truth or falsehood argument. Some, beyond that, want the freedom to be sexually active without lifelong consequences. Others just want freedom of self-determination. It's a general and seemingly more noble defense. But if someone has to die in defense of that freedom, so be it. So be it. It's a highly treasured freedom. That's the way it's been throughout human history. Some people die in defense of the freedom of others. We've always done that. And in that battle, if it has to be unborn tissues and organs that die, again, so be it. In fact, all the better. 
Those people have never known self-determination in any case. They've not been born into this world, so they don't know what they're missing. They don't know what they're losing. Where's the moral dilemma? The problem here, my friends, is that those little beings themselves never had the freedom to choose whether they'd like to lay down their lives for this cause. And the fact that they don't have any voice is enough for others to fill in that void and to speak for them on their behalf. And that's the dialogue we still have on this subject today. But just think of the freedom that's forfeited in that exchange. Just think of it. It's, it's ghastly and immoral. If you can't speak for yourself, if you can't defend your own freedom, well, we'll just use you to defend ours. We'll sacrifice your life to secure our good, or at least our current perception of our good. And no one's worse off Really? Everyone loses when that immoral foolishness becomes the thought structure by which a moral argument is evaluated and pursued. Everyone eventually loses. But that's how persecution works. Truth doesn't matter. My freedom, my self-determination, my perception of my good is what matters to me. And that's defended. And when you get enough people saying, I'll support you and yours, you support me and mine, now we've got a movement that crushes morality and truth under its feet. If you threaten that, I'm against you. If you threaten my freedom and my self-determination, I'm against you, and if you're not strong enough to defend yourself, I'll stop at nothing to silence you. I will not even stop at murder. And that is happening in civilized society. That expression of injustice is really hard to take when it's aimed at you. That's what's hard. That's why we're talking about that this morning. That kind of injustice is really hard to take when it's aimed at you. But my friends, that's just what Jesus said would be aimed at us as believers as the last days progress. And the days between when Jesus came the first time and the days that he comes the second time, those are the last days. And opposition to him is progressing through those days. This is just what Jesus said would be aimed at us, at believers, as the last days progress. Again, back to Luke's earlier gospel. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you will be put to death, Jesus said. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's how our Savior put it. Now, there was hope in his very next words that we're going to draw hope from a couple of other texts. 
But we need to hear that one. That one needs to settle in first. This is Jesus talking to his followers in Luke 21 as his earthly ministry was drawing to a close. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And I believe that distilling a few principles, three in number, from right here in Acts 21 could be helpful to us as we prepare for those kinds of days. So let me give those to you. Three quick principles. This will wind us toward a conclusion this morning. First, persecutors rarely have a clear idea of what you're teaching. It's something good to remember. Persecutors rarely have a clear idea of what you're teaching. We can see that right here when they say Paul is teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, verse 21, and that he's teaching everyone everywhere against the Jews and the law and the temple, verse 28. These were straight-up lies. They were provable as false. But persecutors don't care about that. They feel threatened, so they turn to attack mode. That's good for us to know. Defending what we actually said when the persecution arises probably not going to take us very far. That is a good thing to know in advance. Second, persecutors rarely have accurate information on what you're doing. Isn't that interesting? Persecutors rarely have accurate information on what you're doing. We can see that right here as well, where the Jews supposed that Paul had brought Trophimus the Ephesian into the temple and defiled the place, verse 29. Assumptions are as good as facts for persecutors. And oftentimes, they're even better. It's good for us to know this. It's good to be aware of this. False accusation is exactly what was levied at Jesus when he was arrested. It is almost certainly what will be addressed to all of his followers as they are. That's good to know. Persecutors rarely have accurate information on what you're doing, and they're not interested in uncovering it. It's good for us to remember this when we hear accusations against brothers and sisters as well, by the way. It's good to remember that persecutors are rarely interested in the truth of what you're actually doing. Think about that when you hear accusations of brothers and sisters. My friends, there are plenty of examples where those accusations are absolutely true. And we discover them over time. But where do our hearts and minds go when we first hear them? Do we have a gospel response to the accusations that are levied against brothers and sisters in Christ? I would just encourage you as a little... Aside, a little parenthetic thought, press on in love at such times. Bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things until the truth or the falsehood is proven. At least don't get swept into this idea, this mindset where truth really doesn't matter. 
So that's the second one. First, persecutors rarely have a clear idea of what you're teaching. Second, persecutors rarely have an accurate information on what you're doing. Third, persecutors rarely have any interest in due process. Persecutors rarely have any interest in due process. What, what would have happened if word had not come to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion? There in verse 31. What would have happened if they hadn't been alerted? What would have happened if he hadn't at once taken soldiers and centurions and run down into the crowd? Verse 32. What would have happened? Would the Jews have stopped beating Paul on their own? I don't think so. The way that this is described here, I think they would have finished the job right there and then, and there would have been nothing to try in the courts. That's the way it is with persecutors. They're not interested in due process. Due process isn't a high priority for them. In fact, at times, it's just an obstacle. It's good for us to know that. Wouldn't you agree? To be reminded of that. Justice is not what you're facing under persecution, and there is rarely any source of justice in the immediate scenario to appeal to. Unusual for Paul at this time, because there was one to appeal to, and Rome was it. Over and again, we see through Luke's record, the Jews were the ones that were violently opposed to the advance of the gospel, And the Romans, while they were not really receptive to it, were friendly to it all along, just watching and ensuring justice as best they could. They're oftentimes the source of that throughout the record of Acts. But that won't always be available to the people of God, a strong and authoritative grounding of justice and truth. It's rarely available under persecution. It's good for us to know that and to keep in mind that it is a biblical precedent. We're drawing that from observations in the text that we see here in Paul's experience. This is just some of the instruction that we can discern and draw from Paul's first week in Jerusalem here. As again, the on-ramp to the speech that he will make in the next chapter. Some of the instruction, some of the lessons that we can discern and draw, persecution isn't pretty. It isn't petty. And it isn't fair. No part of it is fair. It's ugly in every expression. And yet, it's our inheritance in this life. truth needs to sink in as well. It's our inheritance in this life as true believers in likeness to our Savior. So it's good for us to understand some things about it and to be prepared when we see it so that we're not surprised as though something strange were happening to us when it comes. And even while we're largely free of this kind of persecution, persecution on this level that we read about here this morning, While we're largely free of it in our area of the world, one of the ways that we can keep fresh in our understanding of it, for hopefully that's one of the conclusions you draw this morning, I need to keep this in mind, even if I'm not facing it currently. One of the ways we can keep it 
freshly in mind is by praying faithfully by brothers, for brothers and sisters around the globe who actually do face it daily. And that, I believe, would be the majority of the Christians on the face of the planet right now. I really do believe that we are in the minority. So how do we keep it in mind? I think we keep it in mind by praying for those who are facing it every day. Hebrews 13 tells us directly, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Isn't that a great statement from Hebrews 13? That, that section where just rapid-fire instruction is being given to the church. How to live out the gospel. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. We're part of the same body of Christ together. And praying for them in this way could be Great preparation toward handling such treatment ourselves when it comes our way. Now, I grant, my friends, that this could sound like a downer of a takeaway this morning. I understand that. I thought about that and wrestled with it a bit. Could feel like a bit of a downer of a takeaway to pray for those in persecution so that you'll be more likely to recognize it and endure it well when it comes on you. But there are rich and sweet promises that Jesus makes to us in the midst of all of that that remove a bit of the sting for us. For instance, I'm thinking of the church in Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. Smyrna, the same region from which those Jews came who stirred up Jerusalem against Paul, the Asian churches. Jesus said to the church at Smyrna, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Don't fear from Jesus. Be faithful unto death, he said, and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is saying, ponder this truth. I'm telling you, don't be afraid. A crown of life awaits you on the other side of this suffering. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then a closing promise. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There's your inheritance unto eternal life. That's a sweet reminder. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying essentially what Paul said to the Romans, that that sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. All of the grotesque sufferings of this world, not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And, and he said to the Corinthians, this light, momentary affliction. This is in the same letter where he detailed over nearly a full chapter all of the beatings and sufferings that he had endured. Just one in the list, five times the 40 lashes minus one. Five times. That means 195 stripes on the back of the Apostle Paul. He knew suffering. And yet he says to this very same church, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Beyond all comparison. 
That's the inheritance of the believer as well. Suffering with Jesus in this life, yes, but glory of an immense proportion well beyond all comparison with this world awaits those who press on faithfully even to the point of death. He's saying, yes, there's suffering in this life. What else would you expect from a fallen world? But walking with Jesus, suffering with Christ, is worth it according to Jesus, according to Paul. It will not be wasted. Jesus' own suffering unto glory is the proof of that very truth. A theme that runs through Hebrews as well. Jesus' own suffering unto glory proves that truth. We suffer with him, we reign with him. There's our inheritance. And my friends, from Paul's experience in Acts 21, we need to be prepared for that. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these are challenging truths. It is so much better to talk about things, so much easier, I should say, to talk about things that make us feel better, things that distract us for a few minutes from the hardships in this life. And yet, Father, that is not, according to your word, the things that, those are not the things that would be truly helpful to us in what we will face in this life. That sort of trite and simple positivism in this life doesn't prepare us to endure, doesn't clear our vision to see the eternal weight of glory beyond the sufferings of this present world. And Father, that is what we need. That is what Jesus died for us to know. And that is what will help us be faithful brothers and sisters even now while we live in relative comfort, mostly free of opposition while the majority of our brothers and sisters around the world don't have an experience anything like that. Help us to be faithful by the work of Christ in our own hearts and through that faithful love and support of our brothers and sisters, help us likewise to be ready for whatever comes in fulfillment of the promises of your own word. And now, Father, I pray that as we remember the body and blood of Jesus, we would remember the ultimate suffering that was accomplished on our behalf and the resurrection that followed that gave us hope of eternal life. Thank you for Jesus. We remember him now and ask that by your grace you would strengthen us to walk in a manner worthy of him, even through this act of remembrance this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.